this is the long run. So it's sort of the strangest thing playing at Lords, which I'm lucky enough to do playing for Middlesex, is that you actually come out to bat through one of the great rooms of London, really. Here it is with its chandeliers and 18th and 19th century paintings, and you wend your way through to the door and then down the steps, and that out you're onto the field of battle. Is there anything in the room that sort of strikes you as you look around that gives you a sense of the extraordinary history of cricket condensed into this long room? I love this painting of a country house that looks like an 18th century scene. And already you get the sense of cricket's origins sort of being slightly rewritten and rebranded at an early stage because, of course, cricket, like most sports, had a slightly more edgy and dodgy start to its career than people like, like to own up. Lots of gambling, lots of match-fixing, big money-changing hands. And you're already here, 18th century, you get this sense of very noble-looking, elegant, refined, rural game, which, of course is what we're all spoon-fed. So even at a very early stage, you get this dissonance between you know, appearance and reality. OK, let's move on now from the long room and see if we can find some history upstairs in this building. OK. Few places conjure up the extraordinary and enduring legacy of Britain's sporting history more than here at Lord's Cricket Ground. The insouciant gentleman that played here, for the most part, disdained hard training, over-examination, self-reflection and study. A century later, serious writing and serious thinking about sport remain rare, and amongst professional players, even rarer. Ed Smith is one of those rarities, captain of Middlesex County Cricket Club and the author of three delightful books on sport. In playing hardball, he offered us playful comparisons of English cricket and American baseball. In On and Off the Field, he gave us the insider's diary of a cricket season, but with a rare and refreshing injection of honesty and self-reflection. Most recently, he's cast his net beyond cricket in What Sport Tells Us About Life. Hello, Ed. Hi, David. Welcome to Lords. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Ed, tell me, you wrote in What Sport Tells Us About Life that cricket, amongst sports, is perhaps the most self-conscious about its own history. Why do you think cricket is so engaged with its own historical record? I think what happens in sport in the 19th century is it discovers a moral purpose, which is always a double-edged thing. You have to start lying about what's gone before. In the 18th century, cricket was as as much mixed up with vice gambling and all the other sins of Georgian England as any other pastime. But the Victorians see sport as a means of educating a ruling class and then ultimately civilising an empire. And cricket, preeminent of all sports, becomes their great tool for doing that. So cricket has to become whiter than white, if image, if not in reality. And that's where you get this sense of the pure amateur ethos, disinterestedness in its classic sense of leadership, of sacrifice, a pure sport which somehow elevates all those who play it. And has that narrative changed since the Victorian era? Are we still, when we enjoy and reflect upon cricket, are we still telling ourselves the same stories? Inevitably, professionalism changes that. If you asked any captain of any professional team playing cricket now, what's his ambition? The first thing he'd say if he's doing his job properly is my ambition is to win. He may say, secondary to that, that he'd like to play cricket in the right way. But very, very few people, in fact none, would say that their ambition is to embody an ideal first and incidentally if we can win as well that would be very nice. That isn't the way it's set up now and with the amount of money in the game, but not just the amount of money, the expectation on professional sports and the impatience of fans, the demands of the media, the scrutiny. Being a jolly good chap and occasionally winning cricket matches is not a good way to make a career. That doesn't mean to say 
that there is no longer any stress on behaviour or a code of ethics or a code of behaviour. And I think it's actually wrong to see them in opposition. The sportsmen I enjoyed playing against the most were not the ones who wanted to be my mate out on the field. I've always had a slight contempt for that. But the ones who competed very, very hard, even friends of mine who would never even make eye contact in a kind of reassuring way in any way, never undercut the competitive narrative of the day. And then after the game, they'd meet you without any side or any edge and they'd meet you as a friend. That is what the spirit of cricket is. That can survive not only professionalism, it can survive any amount of money or any amount of media scrutiny. And that's what we're talking about, I think, when we mean the spirit of cricket. One of the stories that cricket has embodied, certainly for me growing up in the 1970s, is whatever it was, it was a story about England. And then it was a story about the relationship of these islands with the rest of the world through cricket. And that was a predominantly colonial, and as you say, cricket a civilising force. 30, 40 years on, how much of that story still makes any sense? Are we going to have to start writing and thinking about some new cricket stories to reflect a different kind of world that cricket's played in. I think that's right. We are going to have to start thinking of new stories. I think that is out, outdated in terms of cricket. In England, the idea of seeing it as being about the amateurs on the one side and the hard-working pros on the other, that division's gone. It doesn't mean anything anymore. We're all professionals. I was brought up to be as professional as someone who didn't come from the same background as me or didn't have the same education. I wasn't someone who skipped practice and rode tigers in my spare time. I actually just was a very, very hard-working guy who wanted to play for England, exactly like everyone else. In the same way, in terms of Englishness and the game abroad, I think that the idea that England is a special case due to some class legacy is also no longer true. We practice train, we're trying to win as hard as anyone else. We're not trying to have some kind of colonial influence when we play cricket abroad anymore, and nor should we, of course. If there's one paradox here, it's that it took a while for England to grow up from that sense of being in a post-colonial situation. For a while, I think probably the, the 80s and sometimes into the 90s too, you get almost a sense of confusion, self-doubt, somehow pervading the whole game in England as though we're not quite sure how we fit into this. The countries that we gave cricket are now beating us at it. Where does that leave us? What's our mission statement, if you like, now that we don't believe in our old mission statements? And of course, the mission statement for any sports team is to win, play well, behave well, but to win. I think we're fine with that now. I think that England can play cricket just as other nations play cricket, which is, after all, <laughs> just as it should be. So where's the centre of power now in global cricket? Obviously, power has shifted in lots of ways to the east, to India. The main reason for that is that India is a, a phenomenal emerging marketplace for global brands who can position their products through cricket advertising. So if you're running Pepsi or Coca-Cola or Nike, the market you're excited about getting into is not the 56 million people in England, but the billion people in India. And we see something like the IPL, the Indian Premier League, attracting $10 billion worth of sponsorship, which they can disperse over 10 years, and being able to pay players well over a million US dollars for a month's work. Now that's obviously turning everything in cricket on its head financially. I would add two caveats to the general idea that power has moved or everything shifted. I wonder whether the old cricketing establishment, which I don't mean lords, I mean, if you like, the old Commonwealth teams, which still play each other in test matches in one-day internationals and 2020 matches, isn't more robust and more resilient than people imagine. And I think it will take a hell of a lot more than a few rupees to get rid of test cricket or anything like that. It's not going to happen. 
The second thing I'd say is that when anything new and glamorous comes along, people inevitably assume it must have a downside, as if two competitions must exist like pistons, and if the one were to go up and the one were to go down, it doesn't work like that. When money comes into a game, the whole game often benefits. It doesn't necessarily mean that one part of the game has to be extinguished or has to become embattled. And I think in lots of the reporting on the IPL, this new Indian extravaganza, there's been this quite chippy desire to knock what's happening, for example, in the county championship in England, which, of course, is 160 years old. I don't see it that way at all. I see it as being an exciting addition to a very strong game. What do you make of the kind of stories coming out of India now? I read someone like uh, Ramachandra Guha, the uh, great historian of English cricket, who describes the game as a, an Indian game discovered accidentally by the English. Does that grate on your ears? Not at all. It's a, it's a great line. Also, Ashish Nandi wrote a very good book called The Tower of Cricket, arguing that cricket somehow fitted into the Eastern philosophy, the idea of destiny, the idea of fate, the idea of things not being, if you like, masterable. So that fitted in in the Indian concept of acceptance, if you like. Interesting to hear you use the idea of the Tower of Cricket and this idea that cricket is unmasterable, that you have to just accept a certain degree of fate and uncertainty in this world. Do you think the kind of stories that cricket games produce reflect that kind of sudden turn of, of fate that you just couldn't have predicted. Is that something special about the kind of stories we like about cricket? Two things about playing cricket. You almost have to have two personalities going within yourself at the same time. The one is the performer side of yourself as a player, which is, I am going to succeed. I mean, Shane Warne put it the best. I was talking to Andrew Strauss, who's Captain England, his colleague of mine at Middlesex. And Warne said to him when Strauss was out of form, the worst thing you can do is turn up to the next game hoping to get runs. You've got to know you're going to get runs. You must see the opposition, the crowd, the day as pawns, if you like, of, of your own. You are controlling events. You are masterful in your execution of your plan. Every day, you've got to be like that, if you possibly can be. And yet, you can't help noticing that it doesn't work that way. You can have done everything right, preparation, practice, psychological up-for-itness, if you like, and then either a slice of bad luck or a good piece of play by the opposition, and you're out, and your day's over. Destiny's intervened against you, or luck has dealt you a bad hand. Somehow, you have to reach an accommodation with that, and yet not let that diminish in any way your sense that the next day you're going to shape events to your chosen narrative. Listening to you describe those emotions and narratives, I can't help but think of your book on baseball because so much of what you say also applies to the sport of baseball. And I just wanted to bring in baseball because, like cricket, it also has an obsession with its own history. Mm. And what both sports have is an extraordinary amount of historical record-keeping, mm. like no other sports in detail and sophistication that is unimaginable. What sort of text do you, do you think it gives to both games that there is such incredible record-keeping in mm. wisdom and batting averages? And, and does it make sense for us to compare the stories of the past and the stories of the present through that medium? It's good questions. I think it does add a depth. Following cricket or following baseball for a lot of kids is almost a sort of a form of statistical nerdy obsession, isn't it? It's a way of escaping from the rest of life or the fact that you're not very good at 
playing yard football, so you end up going back and looking through your wisdoms and working out who averaged what in 1873 or whatever it is that people do. In the same way, baseball, the box score, scoring with your dad, exactly what people do in cricket. They go along and they keep a tally on the, the bottom of the scorecard. And there is this sort of mathematical, intellectual cosiness, if you like, that cricket and baseball both split up very discreetly into small parts in a way that, for example, soccer doesn't really work, does it? One nil's one nil, put it upside down or turn it inside out. The interesting thing about both cricket and baseball is that they exist in the same place in the national consciousness. Neither is anywhere near the most popular sport, but both seem to have the deepest hold on the national psyche. Both of them have much shadier pasts than they like to own up to. Both of them have had big trouble with max fixing. Both of them have struggled to come to terms with life as it really is in the professional modern era. I think they exist... Almost in parallel, baseball in American culture and cricket in English culture. The difference, I would say, and of course this is where I have an argument with any Americans, I think cricket's travelled better. Cricket is an intensely sensual game. It has many pleasures rather than just storytelling. When you're playing and watching cricket, what are your pleasures? When I'm playing cricket, thinking about the pleasures of cricket is a dangerous activity. I've never told this story before. I went through a phase where I read a lot of D.H. Lawrence essays, and there's one in which he talks about being a writer. I am man alive. He says, I am a writer, and how could I be more truly myself and more truly alive than when I'm writing, doing this elemental thing? And I remember I just read this brilliant piece of sort of purple Laurentian prose, and then I was playing in a really, really close game. And I thought, isn't this wonderful, John? I'm so engaged. I'm so completely concentrating on you know, winning this game, and it could go either way. And the next thing that happened, the spiralling catch went up, and it sort of landed between three of us. And any one of us probably could have caught it. And a couple of very <laughs> aggressive-looking teammates have looked at all three of us. And I suddenly thought, I am man dead. <laughs> and, uh, of course, the funny thing about professional sport or any kind of sport is that your absorption is so total that you don't think about and that was an example of doing it wrong if you like where I was almost watching myself of course when you're watching sport when you're in my case now I'm injured or when I'm watching another team play and I'm not playing that day you're able to take pleasure in the whole and you're able to take pleasure in as you said the sensual side of cricket the sound of the ball on the bat almost imagining how well it's been hit just from the crack on the bat, the smell of the grass, the movement of the whole field and the sense of a day's trajectory. I spent a day here watching Middlesex play a one-day game when I was injured. You get a sense of the whole sweep of the day. And one of the great things about playing cricket, watching cricket rather, unfortunately it's led to its success as a corporate entertaining thing, but in its purest form just among two friends, for example. I mean, if you hadn't seen a great old friend... What could be better than spending a whole day together at a cricket match, sitting next to each other with something neutral to look at, with plenty of gaps to talk, when the conversation stops, something to watch. At a cricket match, it's a wonderfully natural way to connect with someone, I think. Do you think we're still going to have those kinds of meaningful conversations when we're watching 2020, which is boom, bam, zip, zap, rather than the leisurely pace of the more conventional forms of the game? No, it's not going to allow. The 2020 doesn't lend itself to chats and conversations and, and to letting the day seep into you in a way that a test match or, or, or a four-day match does. But there will always be test matches and there will always be four-day matches. And you have to look at the Ashes in 2005. 
to see that a good test series can get into the hearts and minds of a country's psyche better than any 2020 match or even a football match because it happens over two or three months. It's almost like Dickens publishing a novel in instalments. You know, what is going to happen next? And you're going to find out in a week's time, over five days. And that just becomes part of the rhythm of your summer. One of the things for me that makes great sport is the sense that the people who are playing it, however serious and focused they are, there is some element of them that is still the child that is playing this just because they love playing it. You sense it when that isn't there. Is that an essential component of great sport that in the end it's not sport, it's actually it's just a game and people are just playing it? There's an element of that. I think it's a long way down, though. I don't think it's necessarily something that has to be masquerading on the surface. Clowning around in sport, A, doesn't help you to win, obviously, and B, doesn't actually necessarily mean that at a deep level you are enjoying it. It's sort of all a bit of an act. When you're playing sport, the trivial anxiety should drift away. If you're playing really well and you start thinking about, oh, well, if I do well, I'll get more money at the end of the year, then you're not playing that well. <laughs> you're worrying about the effect your performance will have rather than your performance itself. The idea of play in sport is very interesting. I can't help wondering what it is that keeps me playing sport. The biggest thing, I think, is that I love it. And I can't help loving it. It's not a decision. Even in practice today, I feel in control. I'm basically a man with a stick hitting a moving ball. And I'll feel better for the rest of the day having done it. I'll be less likely to be irritable, short-tempered, because I've been totally absorbed in a game. Now, obviously, that's only practice. If you then factor in the greater depth of psychological struggle that happens when you add an opposition in and you add personal conflict, you add the complexities of team life, you add the wanting to win over one day or, or four days or a whole season, all those things are deeply interesting. But just at the level of play, that's what I can't live without. On top of those things, at the deepest level, I love hitting the ball. I love hitting it really well. I love hitting it as well as I can. And I love that feeling of mastery. That's what I mean by a sense of play. But that doesn't mean doing handstands and cartwheels. It means absorption. It's been a great pleasure, Ed. Thank you very much. Stay absorbed. Keep enjoying it. Thanks, David. It's been really nice to have you here at Lords. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.